following sermon was recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org. A little bit about this idea of a tree in the sea. Uh, I'd, I'd looked far and wide at the internet. I thought surely I could find a real picture of a of a tree really on the deep sea. And this was as close as I could get. It's a, it's a picture of a tree on the sea, but in very shallow, sandy water where it's growing. And, of course, the reason you can't find a picture of a tree in the middle of the ocean is why? Well, it's impossible, right? It would, it's only possible with Photoshop. And I, shot, I thought surely somebody would have Photoshopped this, but I couldn't find it, right? It is, it is uncharacteristic of a tree to be growing in the middle of the ocean, for a number of reasons, right? A number of reasons. Primarily that trees need land, not water. But Jesus uses this image of, uh, of faith uh, to really picture the uncharacteristic and unnatural life of one who is following Christ, right? If we were to be on a sailing ship somewhere out in the middle of the ocean and we came across a, t- a, s- a tree uh, clearly not supported by land, just outgrowing in the ocean, we would be shocked, right? It's unnatural. It is uncharacteristic. And I think the thing that ties these passages, these sections together is Jesus is talking about a life that is unnatural. What he calls us to be as disciples and as Christians is uncharacteristic of the way re- the rest of humanity lives, right? We are to be so bizarre, and some of us are, right? So bizarre, but, but, but bizarre because of our walk with Christ, not just because we're odd, right? That we are uncharacteristic. We are like a tree in the middle of the ocean. Something so unnatural that our life is marked and stands out. So let's look at how Jesus um, pictures this about what, what this kind of life would look like as Jesus talks about it. And here, uh, more and more as we start getting closer to Jerusalem and to the cross, Jesus a teaching and his address is directed more towards his followers, towards his disciples. And, of course, one reason for that is because everybody else is abandoning him, right? Uh, the Pharisees, the religious leaders, have pretty well settled their mind about Jesus, and they're not interested in what he has to say. And so he's focusing uh, on teaching his disciples what it really means to be a true Christ follower. Um, in the first section, he says this. He said to his disciples... Uh, temptations are sh- uh, to sin are sure to come, but woe to the one to wh- through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea than that he should cause one of these little ones to sin. So pay close attention to your life. Jesus is here. He's, he's describing how our life influences and impacts others. Uh, and he says we must be very careful and be on guard about how the influence we have, especially with, with the young. He talks about the little ones, with our children, with those who are young or our children in the faith. How we use our influence in their life. And the verse is a little misleading in English. And we need to, we need to start out by um, doing some, some word study here. Um, uh, it says, in most English translations, it says something like, the temptation to sin. And it kind of leaves the idea that, you know, if you cause somebody to lie, 
it's better for you to tie a huge rock around your head and get dropped into the ocean. Okay, well, that's a little extreme and not actually what Jesus is saying here. Okay, if any of our life caused, you know, caused somebody else to sin, and it does, right? Things we say make people angry, right? Uh, just sometimes the expression of our face can cause somebody else to sin, right? Um, dressing imp- improperly can cause somebody to have lustful thoughts, right? If, if it was just merely that anything we did caused somebody to sin, well, that would be pretty harsh, right? That's not really what Jesus is talking about here. The word that's used here is the Greek word from which we get the, the English word scandal, the word scandalon. Uh, and it really has the idea of a stone or a rock of offense. Right? We'll see later that Jesus was called a scandalon. Right? He was the rock of stumbling. And what's pictured here is somebody who puts before somebody uh, an obstacle that causes them to trip in a way that they fall away from the faith. Right? So we're not talking here about causing somebody to lust a little bit. Right? Not that that's not a sin and not that that's not serious. But what he's talking about here is much beyond that. He's talking about uh, doing things that would cause somebody to lose their faith right? or to fall away from faith, if not permanently, uh, to fall away from faith and, and not really trust in God anymore. Right? So it's a serious thing. And uh, it's, it's serious in Jesus' eyes. And he says, you, you've got to be very careful. These things will come and people will, for various reasons, fall away from faith. They will find reasons not to trust in Christ as Messiah, as Savior. So those things will happen. But you be very careful that it doesn't happen through you. And and notice here, Jesus is not talking to the Pharisees anymore. And certainly the Pharisees were a stumbling stone to many. And because of their teaching and because of their influence, they were causing many to fall away from faith and from following Jesus. But Jesus is not addressing them. He's addressing his disciples, and he says to his disciples, Watch out. Be careful that you do not use your life and your influence in a way that causes others to lose faith. Um, Well, how can we do that? How can we be a a stumbling stone to somebody else? Well, uh, you know, the obvious and blatant way would be to teach blatant error, right? So somebody who's teaching a false gospel. Uh, somebody who is teaching that there are other ways to salvation. Uh, and, and people listen to that teaching. Now, of course, that would be putting a stumbling stone in front of somebody. But that's really not, I don't think, what Jesus is talking about here. He's talking to disciples. He's talking to you and I who are followers of Christ, who are uh, holding to the gospel. But there's a danger that if we're not attentive and careful, we can communicate things perhaps inadvertently, mistakenly, that turn people in the wrong direction. Um, when I was, and it can happen to, to strong Christians, right? Uh, when I was in Bible school, I had a very good friend who uh, was in Bible college with me, and he, he had grown up in a Christian home. In fact, his family uh, were very involved in full-time ministry with a, a mission in the, in the U.S. And so he grew up surrounded in by the church and by truth, right? He knew the truth. He went to a very good Bible college where he was grounded in the truth. But the whole time, uh, as I look back at, at our friendship, there was in him this longing for kind of to be super spiritual, right? Now, uh, is it bad to be super spiritual? Well, depends, right? Uh, it's good to be Christ-like. 
It is, however, bad to be super spiritual if what you mean by that is I'm going to be, by my own strength, I'm going to be super good. That's kind of the bent of his life. And he graduated from Bible college and he went out and he's, because of this, this longing to be kind of above everybody, he got connected with this kind of cult group who taught a very much uh, gospel that wasn't the gospel of Christ. And he went off the deep end. And he got deeply entrenched in this group, so much so that he uh, disowned his family. He told them they were all, you know, going to hell. Uh, just kind of went off the deep end, right? Um, and I met him about 10 years later, and he shared this with me. And praise God, God got a hold of his life and brought him back, right, to the truth. And he realized the error of his ways, praise God. But how easy it is to let uh, what we think are good truths get twisted and distorted and become destructive, right? And this can happen in our own life. Um, and, and he says, be careful about how we influence little ones, our kids, students, people who are young in the faith, new disciples and new followers of Christ. And I could go and spend all morning talking about the wrong ways, but let's not go there. Let's talk about the right way. How do you make sure that you don't mistakenly, somehow through something you teach or something you model, lead somebody off into uh, a moralism that is contrary to the gospel? Well, it's real simple. You stay absolutely gospel-centered in everything you do. The way you live your life and the core of everything you teach needs to be rooted deeply in the core of the gospel. What is that? Well, we talked about it last Sunday, right? It is real simple. It's, not com- it's, it's, it's easy enough that all of us, I think, can remember this. There's basically three things. First thing, you are a sinner. Okay, you can repeat it if you want so you don't forget this. I am a sinner. Right? Uh, and I was a sinner before I got saved. And I, I got saved through Christ. And I'm, but I'm still capable of sin. Is there anybody here this morning who's got so spiritual and they've walked with God so long that you're just kind of beyond sin now? Anybody? Anybody? <laughs> but nobody's going to raise their hand to that one, right? Because we know we can sin at any time. And uh, if you don't believe that, just pray that God would show that to you. <laughs> right? A couple weeks ago, uh, I had to pick Denise up. She had to get some medical tests done at, at uh, ROM. And... Uh, I had to go pick her up, and so I went, and I pulled in front of Ron because my truck's too tall to fit in the parking garage. So I thought, well, I'll just park in the front, and there was a spot right there, right? So I pulled into this empty car spot at the front of the hospital, and the security guard runs up, and he says, you can't park here. I says, I'm just picking somebody up. He says, you can't park here. I says, well, why? And there was a car parked right, right beside me, right? So other cars had parked there, and it just irritated me. And it just, all of a sudden, I just went into, like, total flesh mode, right? And I just was really mean to this guy. And uh, he won, which made me even more mad, right? And uh, I was just totally a jerk to this poor Thai guy. He was just doing his job, right? He, he didn't make the rules. He's just, he's just doing his job, right? And I drove away thinking, man, I'm such an idiot. You know, how easily the flesh can kick in. And I can be anything but Christ-like, right? Uh, so first thing, we are what? Sinners. We are sinners, right? We are capable of sin. That's the gospel. And if we ever get very far from that, we're in trouble. Secondly, we cannot fix that ourselves. The only hope is the cross. 
The only hope is the person and work of Christ that he's done for us. And not just to save us from sin, but to daily be transforming our life. Right? Our life is transformed through the cross, not through our effort. Right? We become obedient and godly through the work of Christ on the cross. That's the gospel. And where we get off sometimes is we think we're saved by the cross and now it's our job to be living good moral lives kind of like Buddhists. Like, like we're Christian Buddhists. We got saved by Jesus, but now we do everything else by our effort. Right? That's not the gospel. And if we teach that, if we model that, we will cause people to move away from the faith because we're teaching them something they cannot do. Right? You cannot become good on your own strength and effort. It has to be the transforming work of Christ in us that changes us, right? That's the gospel. Through the power of the cross, the power of the resurrection, we are changed, right? So we're, we're sinners, number two. The only solution is Christ and his work. Number three, the only way to appropriate that is through faith, right? By trusting him to do that work in us and through us and for us. Uh, and what I'm saying is, if you want to make sure we don't mess up on this one and end up with a really heavy stone necklace, um, right? we've got to be diligent about making the gospel the center of everything that we do, everything that we teach. Right? And so much of our good teaching moves away from the gospel. Right? And I'm telling you, when we do that, we run the risk of leading people away from the faith. Right? Um, and, and anything that strays from that path is a different gospel, and it's serious. And the consequence is that, uh, you know, that we we wear a stone necklace, right? Graphic picture of a millstone. Uh, these millstones, I've seen them. They're huge, right? They weigh hundreds of pounds. Jesus, it's better if you, you know, have this millstone tied around your neck and dropped off in the ocean. You sink to the bottom very quickly. Basically, what Jesus is saying here is it's better to fall in the hands of the mafia, because right? that's what they do, right? And go swimming with Jimmy Hoffa. Right? Some of you are not old enough to get that, but some of you get that, right? Uh, it's bad. Okay, just let me say it's bad, right? Just don't go there, right? Uh, it's serious, right? And so the question we need to ask is what kind of example, not only what we say, but how do we live our life in a way that is an example of the gospel? Um, how are we living out the gospel day by day? Uh, and and the, um, the problem is that um, you know, we're not careful about our life, right? There's a disconnect sometimes between our theology and our action. And even though we know in our head we're supposed to be living out the gospel, we start living out a life of works, and what we model uh, is not gospel-centeredness. And Jesus gives us an example of this in the next story. So let's kind of jump on to the next story, the next uh, proverb, if you will, uh, where Jesus pictures this for us more clearly. He says this, If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in a day, and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. Um, Jesus says there's three things that we need to do as disciples and followers of Christ. And they are radical. Okay? They really are like a tree on the sea. The first thing is to rebuke a sinning brother. Second thing is, 
is to, uh, when, when we're sinning to repent. The third thing is that when there's repentance, we, we must forgive, right? No matter how many times they sin, we must forgive. So let's look at those three things real quick. Uh, he says, a life that is gospel-centered is a life that, uh, where we have the right kind of influence means that we live in a community, we live in relationships with other people where it is okay to tell them they're screwing up, right? Where it's okay to tell people you're being a jerk, right? Um, now, how many of us do this? Now, you have to raise your hand, but you know, how many of us really do this well, right? Um, well, there's, there's, there's problems with this because there are some people who do this, right? They do not do it well, right? They're all too free to tell other people, you know, how, how, how much they're messing up, right? And so um, a lot of us are a little nervous about this one because we want to turn a bunch of, like, church police loose on the world. And we're like, yeah, that would be bad. And you know, we think of passages where Jesus says things like, you know, take care of the log in your own eye first, right? And we're a little nervous about this whole going about rebuking each other, right? But Jesus says, rebuke your brother when they're sinning, um, and here's the problem, uh, and, and, and this is where it kind of goes back to this this, uh, this this way we live by example, right? The way we live out the gospel. What does what does a gospel culture look like? And the reality is that we live in a culture in a world where rebuking each other, the way that Jesus is describing here, where it's healthy and positive and loving, right, is not a part of our culture. Right? Especially if we're in Western cultures, because in Western cultures, we are all sovereign over our own life. And uh, we have the attitude, who has the right to tell me what to do? Right? Who are you to judge me? Right? And that's not our culture. Right? And I don't know any Western culture where that is okay to point out other people's flaws. And of course, in Asian cultures, it's even worse because you lose face. Right? It's not man's culture to do this. But it is gospel culture. And the problem is that we do not live out a culture of the gospel. And what do I mean by that? Well, what I mean by that is this. First thing of the gospel is what? First point, we're sinners. We're, we're what? We are sinners, right? One of our identities, and it's not our only identity, right? We're forgiven sinners. But part of who we are is people who mess up. Right? We need to make that part of our culture, but is that the typical church culture, right? Is that the kind of thing we put on our, our slogan, right? We're a bunch of sinful, wicked, rebellious people. Enter at your own risk, right? But it should be because that's what we are, right? We are people capable of biting your head off, right? Restrained only by the Holy Spirit and the work of God in our life, right? Um, we need to develop a culture and a place where we live in community and relationships where it's just a fact of the nature of our relationship that you're going to mess up and I'm going to mess up, right? And we're all going to do stupid things, right? This, this is a great place to start with marriage, right? Because marriage, usually we do it like this. It's like, well, I'm not going to mess up and you better not mess up, right? But if I mess up, I want forgiveness. But if you mess up, I'm going to hold it over your head, right? What if marriage was like this? Well, I'm going to mess up, and you're going to mess up a lot, and we're going to get lots of practice to forgive each other, right? right? That's gospel culture. And, and Jesus says we need to be in the kind of relationships where this is expected and normal. 
right? And where we don't get so blown away when people sin. But the sad reality is that often the church, uh, we, we put ourselves on a pedestal and we have this expectation that Christians don't mess up, right? That pastors and missionaries and, and people who are following God have to be holy people, right? Now, should we be holy people? Absolutely. But is this going to go perfectly? Absolutely not, right? Uh, we should be striving for holiness. But it is a, it is a battle. It is a wrestling match with our flesh. And the truth and the reality is that we have a hard enough time thing with the sins we know about. Right? And there's a whole, a whole bunch of sin, a boatload of sin, that we're not even aware of in our own life. Right? We have blind spots. We have weaknesses. We have areas where we are oblivious to where we're headed. Right? So we need to be a people who develop a culture where it is okay to rebuke each other. Right? Where it is okay to say to a brother, um, you know, you might want to think about this because what you're doing is maybe not really that Christ-honoring. Right? And we need to develop the kind of relationships where we have the freedom to do that. We need to, and here's the other thing, we need to develop relationships with people where we give them permission to speak that way to us. Right? Uh, are there people in your life who you have told, you know, I give you total permission to tell me anytime you think I'm a jerk? Right? We should all have people like that, right? Who we now does that mean that everybody in the whole church is fair game? Well, no, right? Uh, there, there, are, there needs to be a relationship, and 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 Jesus knows. That. He says to your brothers, right? Rebuke your brother. Rebuke those you have that kind of relationship with. Um, Secondly, we need to repent. Right? When we get rebuked, our response is not to be defensive, not to try to hide. Our, 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 our simple response is to repent, right? to confess and admit, you know, you're right. My life and my conduct is not Christ-honoring. And I want to turn away from that behavior. Right? That's what repentance is. It's admitting it's wrong. It's turning away from that, turning to a different path. We need to be humble and gracious and honest enough that we can do this. And the, the deal is, if we could change our culture to one of, yeah, we're all sinners and we all are going to make mistakes, repentance would be much easier. Right? Because we wouldn't put these high expectations that, you know, how dare you sin? Right? It should be more like, well, yeah, of course you sin. And the solution is not to hide or pretend you didn't, but it is to face that sin and repent and confess. Right? And with the help of brothers and sisters around you, deal with that sin. Um, repentance and confession should be a normal part of our Christian experience. And, and uh, you know, the Catholics kind of perfected this with the whole confession thing, and the Reformers moved away from it. But maybe we threw the baby out with the bathwater, right? Uh, we should be in the practice of being honest with our close accountability partners, friends, that we can confess our sins, right? that we can be honest and repent. Why? Because it's how God has enabled us as part of a community to move forward and overcome those sins. Right? If we're constantly hiding and we can never be honest, it will be very difficult to overcome them. Um, 
So we confess. Third thing is we, we forgive. Right? We forgive. Uh, and the context here is, is uh, that the sin is actually towards me. Right? I'm the one that's been hurt. And I rebuke because I have personal connection with this sin. And I, I, I seek and pray for this person to repent. And if they do, I must forgive. And not only that, but he says you must forgive even if it's seven times in a day. Right? Now get the picture of this. Suppose you are married to an alcoholic, right? And they know they're not supposed to drink. And they come to you at 8 in the morning, and you can smell the alcohol in their breath. And they say, you know, dear, I'm sorry. I, I, I drank this morning. I took a drink. I know I'm supposed to. And I'm, I'm, I'm confessing it to you, and I'm repenting. I don't want to do it anymore. It's okay. I forgive you. Noon, they come back. I did it again, right? 2 o'clock. 5 o'clock, 7 o'clock, 9 o'clock, 10 o'clock, 11 o'clock. Seven times in one day they come, and every time they confess they, they drank. And they are, they are heartbroken, they are agonizing, they are wrestling with this sin. They are repentant, right? Seven times you forgive. Seven times you forgive, right? Uh, how many of you could do that? Uh, if the person mattered to you, it would be hard. Right. If the relationship mattered to you, it would be hard. Jesus says, without limit, right? you forgive. I think seven is the most you could do it in one day, maybe. I don't know. but uh, You forgive over and over and over again if they are wrestling and dealing with it. Um, we need, in, in the body of Christ, these kind of accountable relationships, right? We need to be plugged in, whether it's a men's group or a women's group or some kind of peer group, or we have a group of people we can have this kind of relationship with. I'm super thankful for Tom Miyakawa and the work he's done helping form groups like this. And if you are not in one and you don't have those kind of relationships, talk to Tom. Right? We want to get you plugged in. Uh, we need that. Right? We need people around us who will forgive us seven times in a day. Uh, because it's through that grace that it breaks the power of sin over our life, right? Uh, we need those relationships. Um, and we need people who are so committed to the holiness of God and his reputation that we are willing to walk with people in a way that moves them towards godliness, and see, the reason we, we, we worry about people who are going around rebuking is there's an attitude of people who condemn others because they feel they are superior. And that's not gospel culture, right? What we need is people who know they sin and who welcome the rebuke in their own life because they know they have beams and boards and specks in their own eyes. But they are so committed to the reputation of God, right? They're so passionate about the holiness of God in his church that they are horrified when they see sin not dealt with among God's people. Right? Do we care that much about God's reputation? Right? Or are we more worried about if that person will like us or if they'll get mad at us if we speak to them? Are we more concerned about how people think? Or are we passionate about the glory and holiness of God? If we were passionate about the holiness of God's church, 
and, and the reputation it has before the world and the honor of God before a sinful, broken world who is looking to the church, wanting to know if we are really trees on the sea or if we're just like them. Okay? Uh, if we are passionate about the holiness of God, we will take this seriously. And we will hold each other accountable. Right? And we will walk with each other no matter how much we fail. We're going to keep going in this direction of holiness. <clears throat> Next point, verse 5. The apostle said to the Lord, Lord, increase our faith. And Jesus said, If you had faith like a grain of mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, Be uprooted and be planted in the sea, and it would obey you. Um, if you take this out of context, it looks like they're just asking for more faith. And they're just saying, you know, Lord, we, we just don't think we have faith to, you know, because I have yet to get one mulberry tree to grow in the ocean, right? I've been trying this whole casting mountains into the sea thing. It's just not working for me, right? But that's not the context, is it? What is the context here? Well, Jesus has just been talking about this lifestyle of relationships where we rebuke sin, where we repent, and where we offer unbelievable un- and endless forgiveness, right? Why did the disciples ask for more faith? Because they're looking at this going, seven times in one day, you've got to be kidding, right? There is no way I can do that. That is impossible. The only way I could have that kind of grace and forgiveness is if I have a lot more faith. Lord, increase my faith. Because I don't have the faith to do that, right? Um, increase our faith. Uh, and if we are honest... Living out this gospel culture, right? Living out this kind of life where we're that transparent about our own flaws and failures and mistakes, and that willing to take off the mask of our own life and be totally honest about how messed up we really are, and to be honest in confessing and repenting those sins to people around us, and likewise to forgive over and over those who, who hurt us. If we're honest, we would say that is impossible. Why? Because it is unnatural and uncharacteristic of humankind. It is not our nature. It is not what we are like. Uh, and, and so the disciples cry out, Lord, we can't do this. That is impossible. And we should probably approach it with the same attitude. Lord, we can't do this. We need a lot more faith. But notice what Jesus answers. Right? He, he does not say... Thank you for asking. I was hoping you would ask, and now I can pour on you much more faith. Is that what he says? No. Notice what Jesus says. He says, guys, all you need is faith the size of a mustard seed. In essence, Jesus says this. Look, guys, your problem is not uh, the quantity of your faith. That is not the problem. Doing this does not require massive amounts of faith. Right? In other words, and here's the thing, this is what Jesus is saying. You don't have to be a spiritual giant to live out this kind of life. Okay? And this is what we do. We make excuses. We say, you know, Lord, I know I can't do this now, but you know, I'm going to keep reading my Bible and going to church and growing. And someday when I'm 170 years old, I will have gained enough faith to live this kind of life. Jesus says, no. All it takes is a little faith, a tiny little faith, right? 
The problem is not the amount of your faith. The problem is, are you using it? Are you putting it into practice? Are you exercising what little faith you have? And Jesus says simply this, you can do this. If you have even the tiniest speck of faith, you just need to exercise that little bit of faith that you have. So here's the deal. Somebody has hurt you deeply. And it's not only the first time, it's the hundredth time they have hurt you. They've done the exact same thing. And they know it irritates you. Right? They know how much it bothers you. And they do, they do it anyway. And they come to you and they say, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm sorry. I know, that, I know that bothers you. It's like, you have no idea how that, that bothers me. Right? And you just want to... Sorry, sorry. Just killed Grace's guitar. Um, you want to... Um, you want, to, you want to strangle them, <laughs> breaking the guitar, right? Uh, you got to forgive. You need to step out in faith and say, I can't do this, right? But I am going to command forgiveness. I'm going to trust God, and I'm going to do what is humanly impossible. I am going to forgive. I don't feel like it. I don't know what that looks like for me. I am going to take the steps to forgive, and it, at first it may, it may mean speaking a word that, that none of the rest of your body even agrees with. And you just say the word, I forgive you. Right? But you, in faith, you take that step. And, and God will make up the difference. Right? And Jesus is saying here, it's not about your capacity. It's about God's power flowing in you. And again, that is gospel culture. It's the realization that it's only by the power of Christ's work on the cross that I am able to forgive others, that I have the capacity and ability to do this. And you don't need extraordinary faith for that. You just need an awareness of what Jesus has done, the conviction of how much he has forgiven you, and in turn extend that forgiveness and that grace to those around you. And God will do that work in you, and you will begin living out what is impossible. And you will be like a tree on the sea. You will be living a life that is uncharacteristic and unnatural for what it means to be a human being. You will be extraordinary like a tree on the sea. Last thing he says, verse 7. Will any of one of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him when he has come in from the field, come at once and recline at table? Kick up your shoes, relax, right? Will he not rather say to him, prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink? And then afterward, you can eat and drink. Does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants and we have only done what was our duty. Um. It would be very easy if we're successful with point number three, okay? If we are able to exercise faith and do the impossible. And we find ourselves suddenly becoming people of extraordinary capacity to forgive and of grace and of patience. And, you know, the guy cuts you off on the road and you just smile at them and you are at peace and tranquil. And you're just exuding grace and forgiveness everywhere you go, right? Um, there's great temptation and risk in that, in beginning to foster a spirit of spiritual pride. 
of starting to say, well, of course, that's what I do. I am extraordinary. Right? I am a tree on the sea. I am such an example of godliness and of humility and of compassion and grace. Of course, that's what I do. Right? We've got to watch it. Right? We've got to watch it. Because while it is true that this kind of behavior, if you start doing it, is extraordinary, we've got to remember it's not you that did it. Right? It's not because you are extraordinary that you are the tree on the sea. It is because the extraordinary work that God has done in you that's made you like that. You are just a servant, literally a slave. To understand what Jesus is saying here, you've got to understand a little bit about what a servant or slave was in his day, especially if it was a Jewish slave. Uh, we have this picture of slaves being captured and being forced into slavery uh, really apart from their own free will or choice. But in Jesus' day, that's not true for most slaves. Most slaves got into slavery by their own choice, and it would work like this. Uh, you would have financial problems, and uh, maybe you couldn't pay your rent or pay your mortgage, and you get behind, and uh, pretty soon you have this huge debt, maybe, maybe thousands or hundreds of thousands of dollars that you owe. And uh, in those days... If you got behind on your creditor, you didn't just get a bad credit score, right? Or have to go to Chapter 11 bankruptcy. Instead, you went before a judge and before a court, and they could actually beat you. They could beat it out of your flesh, right? This would change the whole credit picture in the world, right? If uh, falling behind on a payment meant you got flogged. And they could throw you in jail for a very long time. So if you're facing a beating and jail term, uh, you, 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 you want to avoid that. So what you would do is you would go to somebody, maybe a friend who is wealthy, and you'd say, hey, look, I'm in trouble. Uh, I, w- I will serve you. I'll be your servant, your slave for X number of years if you will pay off my debt. And a wealthy, generous person would do that. They would say, okay, you serve me. Uh, that debt amount is going to cost you 12 years of your life. You serve me for 12 years, I'll pay your debt. Right? They get you out of jail. They keep you from being beaten, and all you have to do is work for 12 years, right? It's a good deal, right? So you work for this guy, right? And uh, he's done you a favor, and you in turn are paying back really what you owe him because now you owe him that debt. And so the picture Jesus has is, you know, you're out, you're, you're out plowing in the field, and you come in, and uh, do you expect the... The, the master to say to you, oh, you know, it was hot out there. You were working so hard. You know, why don't you just kick back? Let me do supper, right? Let me wash the dishes because I'm feeling kind of bad for you, right? Would you expect that? Well, in our culture, maybe we would, right? So we like get this whole slavery thing. So let me change the picture just a little, right? Imagine this. Uh, you have the student loan of $50,000, right? And uh, every month you faithfully pay off that student loan, your, you know, your measly $112, whatever it is, you pay it off. And um, uh, would you expect that uh, because you pay it on time monthly to get a, a letter in the mail one month saying, hey, I know you're working hard, you're doing such a good job with this whole debt thing. We just want you to know our bank really is with you. And so we're going to waive the interest for this month because we're, we're with you. We love you, man. Uh, would you expect that? Uh, you'd be quite shocked if you got that, right? Because it's like, no, you pay us and you pay the interest. It's the deal, right? Just pay up and pay on time, right? 
We don't get thank you letters from our creditors saying, oh, we just appreciate you so much, right? We get bills <laughs> saying pay on time or we will deal with you. Okay? That's the picture Jesus is painting here. Um, a servant is not in a position to expect favors. He's not in, ex- in a position to expect overwhelming, gushing gratitude from his master. Right? Uh, Likewise, God has redeemed us through the blood of Christ. We are to serve him. We, we in, in essence, owe him our life. And Jesus is not talking here about what God's grace will give us. There will be rewards for us, rewards beyond what we can imagine. And for faithful servants, there will be abundant rewards. Right? So he's not talking about that. What he's talking about is our attitude as we serve. Right? We need to have an attitude of humility that we are just doing what is expected of us, right? We are doing what in gratefulness and gratitude we owe to God who has given us so much grace, who has rescued and saved us. So if we start feeling how extraordinary we are about how, you know, the world should applaud us because we're serving God and how our family should just be awestruck at how what servants we are, right? And how gracious we are to forgive them, right? And don't, I'm telling you, don't do this with your wife, you know? Don't, don't ever like forgive her and then say, aren't you just glad you're married to me that I would forgive somebody like you? I'm telling you, it just unravels the whole thing. Um, no, we say, no. I'm, I'm doing just what I'm doing what is required, right? I'm doing what God commands. I am simply by faith exercising in obedience the life that he's called me to. And it is extraordinary, but it's by his doing and it's through faith that he's working that out in me. It's a miracle and it's just, I'm just doing what is the normal Christian life. Right? Um, let me close with just one last point wrapping this all together. Um, Jesus did this, right? Jesus never commands us to do something that he does not do himself. Uh, Jesus um, is the supreme example, right? And he uses his influence in ways to build faith. Ironically, ironically, he was also a stone of stumbling. As Paul writes in Romans, the people of Israel who tried so hard to get right with God by keeping the law never succeeded, Why not? Because they were trying to get right with God by keeping the law instead of by trusting in him. It's the wrong gospel. And they stumbled. It says they stumbled over the great rock in their path. And God warned them of this in the scriptures when he said, I am placing a stone in Jerusalem that makes people stumble, a rock that makes them fall. But anyone who trusts in him will never be disgraced. Ironically, Jesus was a stone of stumbling. But it wasn't through his bad example, it was through his perfect example that they refused to trust and follow. His example was flawless. Uh, Secondly, Jesus uh, demonstrated infinite grace. Uh, He was both passionate about the honor of his father, right? He, He rebuked sinners, and he was not afraid to point out to everyone their sin, right? But he did it in ways that were gracious and that were humble, And he did it from a motive 
He was passionate about his father's honor. Uh, he, he turned the temple upside down and chased out the money changers and the thieves because he was passionate about the honor of his father's house. A zeal for, his, for your house consumed me, he says. But while he was passionate for God's holiness, he had an incredible capacity to forgive so that the very people who nailed him to the cross as they are beating him and scourging him and mocking him, he said to the Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. At the most horrible time of his life, he was still forgiving. Um, He lives an incredibly miraculous life, right? Because he walked in faith, he was the extreme tree on the sea, right? Extreme example of faithfulness. And he did what was impossible day by day. And finally, uh, he was a servant. Right? Uh, we're a servant because we are indebted to the Father because of our sin. But he was not. And yet he served us. And he served us. And he didn't do it to become Rabbi of the Year. Right? As soon as you read through the Gospels, Jesus is never calling for people to praise him. He's never expecting people to admire or thank him. Um, He does it in faithful service to the Father. And he will one day be exalted. And uh, it's the Sunday after the resurrection. We we serve a resurrected Lord who's been ascended to the heights, who's enthroned. One day every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. But even yet, he serves us. And when we sin, you know, maybe you've already got your quota of seven already and it's only 11.15, you know. I think, you know, falling asleep during the sermon is at least one. (laughs) Or maybe not. You know, it doesn't matter how much we fail. He is faithful to serve us by bending down and washing our feet, by cleansing us over and over of of our sin. You've been listening to a sermon recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org. Because of his great love for us.